Melbourne AA Steps Weekend 2016. This is Chris and David with a presentation on Step 1. Hi everyone, my name's Chris and I'm an alcoholic. And thank you for the group for asking us to do this tonight. (laughs) Uh, It will go for about 40 minutes, I think. And then we'll have... um, three speakers up after us for, um, to share their experience on step one. But I'll hand it over to David and we'll get going. Okay. Hi, my name's David, I'm an alcoholic. And so what we're talking about this whole weekend, we're talking about the 12-step program of, of recovery, uh, AA's 12-step program of recovery. And tonight, uh, as Michael said, we're talking, looking at step one. Um, so this is a big question for me. How do I know I'm an alcoholic? Do I belong here? When I, first started, when I first started coming to AA, and that was quite a while ago, um, the first thing I got coming to AA meetings was I got identification. I heard people talking about what had happening, been happening in their lives, what brought them to AA, and I identified with other alcoholics. And the second thing I got when I started going to AA is I got some hope. Because here was a whole bunch of people who'd been through the same, the same or similar things to me, you know, and a whole lot of problems caused by their drinking. And here they were, lots of them, not drinking and happy about not drinking. And uh, when I was first around, I, I can remember people saying to me, when you go to AA meetings, always look for those two things. Always look for the identification. Look for the similarities between me and the person who's sharing. And I could, and I could always find that if I looked for it. It was fairly easy to find some differences. I'm not like that person because of that. I'm not like that person because of this. But... When people talked about, talked about their disease, about alcoholism, you know, I, I generally identify with another alcoholic. And that second thing, that hope, I always get hope when I come to a meeting. You know, uh, I can come to a meeting and hear someone who's been sober 40 years and I think, well, maybe I can get to 40 years sober. And I get hope from that. But I also get hope from someone who's been, only been around a short amount of time. I see someone coming to AA and they're feeling pretty sick and sorry for themselves. And then they start coming to some meetings and they get some hope and they, and, and they stay sober for a while and I, and I, see, I see them change. Right? I see people standing up in a meeting saying something good's happening in their life because they're not drinking anymore. You know, they've got a new part-time job or one of the kids have said, I love you, or, you know, they've spoken to their mum for the first time in a long time, you know. And I hear those things even from people sh- a short amount of time around and I, get, and I continue to get hope. So there's my recommendation for whenever you go to an AA meeting and for the whole of this weekend. As you, as, as you come to each of the sessions of this weekend, look for those two things. Look for the identification with another alcoholic and then look for, look for the hope. Of course, the thing I identified with is when people talked about the problem because by the time I got to AA, I had lots of problems. That's all I had, really, lots and lots of problems caused by my drinking. And I identified with the problems caused by drinking and, of course, I got hope when people talked about the solution and the solution being the spiritual 12-step program. Now, tonight, uh, we're really going to concentrate on the problem because I really need to understand what my problem is, otherwise I'm not going to be really interested in what, what the solution is. So, you know, a bit of a downer actually tonight because we're only, only talking about step one because we're going to talk about the, you know, and, and try and understand what the, what the problem is. So this is the first step. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And as we go through this, Chris is going to re- do some readings out of this book. So this is, the, uh, this is the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. When the first 100 members of AA got sober, 
Uh, about 75 years ago, they wrote this book and described the 12-step program and how they got sober. So we're going to use this as the reference because this is what helped me get sober. I think one of the best things I ever did when I, when I was first around AA is that I read this book you know, um, and, and found out you know, the information about what they did, those first 100 members uh, did, and uh, it was suggested that I follow what they did and that they got sober and, and I got sober. So this is part of what it says about the first step. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterised by countless vain attempts to prove a good drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we are alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. So it's when I fully concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, that's when I've taken step one. The thing that interests me about this reading is when it talks about no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. So it's suggesting that if I'm an alcoholic, I'm both bodily and mentally different from other people. And when I think about it, that's pretty, it's pretty clear because there's lots of people in the world that drink. 45% of the world's adult population drink alcohol. But most of them don't end up in the, with the sort of problems I had. They don't end up in and out of hospitals and detoxes. They don't end up in AA. They don't end up in a place like this on a Friday night, okay? Most people who drink. So somehow I'm different from all those... There's lots of people out there tonight having a, having a few drinks and enjoying it, okay, and not getting into trouble. There's also a bunch of people out there that are like me that are out there having a few drinks and, and uh, might end up having too many. But, you know, it's not the norm to be out of control as it was for me. So let's have a look at a normal drinker. This guy's a normal drinker and he's gone out for the night to have a couple of drinks and he has that first drink and he, it feels the effect of that. And he, then he's offered another drink, he has a second drink and then he gets to the point where he's offered another drink and he says, no thanks, I've had enough. Now I don't identify with that guy. <laughs> now, see, this guy knows he's gone out to have, you know, have a good time, have a couple of drinks, he feels the effect, right? He feels the effect of the alcohol, the effect that everybody's after. Right? Why do we drink? Because it has that pleasant effect. You know, it, it slows the, slows the mind down a little, and it and it gives us a bit of courage. We can go and ask the girl at the dance, you know, to dance, and those types of things. Everyone who drinks gets that those effects. That's why people drink, right? But he gets to a point where he says, "I've had a couple, and I know I've got the car in the car park, so I don't want to drive drunk, and I know I've got to go to work in the morning, so I don't want to be hung over." Uh, so he doesn't go on. In fact, he probably doesn't even think about those things. You know, he's gone out to have a couple of drinks, he has a couple of drinks, and he says, gets to this point and says, that's enough for me. Now, as I said, I don't identify with that guy at all. I identify with this guy. This guy looks pretty much the same, and once again, he's gone out with the intention of only having one or two, like everybody else does, but once he has that first drink, something happens. Something happens, and he gets this craving to keep going and keep going. And he never gets to a point where he, get, where he says, no thanks, I've had enough. In fact, quite the opposite. He just gets this craving and wants to keep on going and keep on going. This is the guy that I identify with, right? Just looking for another one. He forgets about the fact that he's got the car in the car park. He forgets about having to go to work in the morning. He even forgets about the promise he made to himself before he started drinking. He may have even made this promise to other people. Tonight I'm not going to get drunk, I'm only going to have one or two. That goes out the window 
and, and it just keeps on drinking. When I was first around AA, this is the thing that I first identified with. I heard people say things like, I start with the intention of only having one or two, but then I keep going. I get the taste for it. One's too many and a thousand's not enough. Once I start drinking, I don't want to stop. Now, when I think about it, I'd known about that for a long time. Long before I had a lot of problems caused by my drinking, I can remember circumstances where I realised that I don't drink like other people. In my early 20s, I didn't have a lot of problems caused by my drinking, but I can remember working in, the, in an office in the city and occasionally, you know, Friday lunchtime, someone's birthday, you know, uh, the, my work colleagues and I would go out for lunch, you know, you know just down to a local restaurant. And I can remember my work colleagues having, you know, a glass of wine with a meal or a crown lager or something like that. I can also remember saying, no, I won't have a drink. I'm not going to have a drink at lunchtime because I know if I have one or two drinks at lunchtime and go back to the office... I won't want to work. I'll be watching the clock. I'll be hanging out. I'd be craving another drink. Right? So I'd rather say no to the one at lunchtime and wait until 5 o'clock and knock off and go and have a real drink. Now, my work colleagues, right, they've had a couple of drinks at lunchtime. They come back to the office. They're probably a bit happier than they otherwise would be because they've had a couple of drinks, but they didn't have the same reaction as me. They're not hanging out for another one. They might go home that night and not have another drink for the rest of the night. Now, if you had said to me at the time, do you have a problem with drinking, I would say, no, I've got a lot of control over alcohol because I can say no to the one at lunchtime. But really, the reason I was saying no is because I knew that once I start, something happens to me and I want to keep on going. So I'd rather avoid that one. You know, but put it off. You know, I wasn't going to avoid it altogether. <laughs> I was going to put it off because it, you know, that period of time where I wouldn't, if I had a couple of drinks and I wouldn't be able to have another one, it's just so uncomfortable. That's, that's the craving aspect of it. As I said, that's the first thing I identified with when I came to AA. When AA first started, there was this doctor who had treated around 20,000 alcoholics, a lot of, a lot of, and he knew a lot about it, and he'd actually done these case studies and he'd looked at alcoholism. His name was Dr Silkworth, and he had this theory about, about why this... Uh, why this happened to alcoholics. And uh, when they wrote the book, they asked Dr Silkworth to talk about uh, his ideas about what alcoholism is. This is what he said. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. That was happening to me at the end of my drinking. My problems were piling up and piling up. What, what he talks about there, he describes alcoholism as being an allergy. So what's an allergy? An allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. Now, some people are allergic to, say, strawberries. You know, for most of us, strawberries are fine. Strawberries, on, you know, strawberries and cream on pavlova is fantastic. But for a small percentage of people, if they eat strawberries, they go red in the face, the, the throat gets all tight, and uh, they get quite ill. So it's a good idea for someone like that not to eat strawberries. Now, what happens with me and alcohol is I don't get that sort of reaction. What happens with me and alcohol is I get a craving to keep going and keep going. And this doesn't happen to most people. As we saw before, there's that guy, he's had a couple of drinks and he can say, I can stop there. Right? It doesn't happen to most people. It only happens to a small percentage of people. That happen, happen, I happen to be one of them. I get this craving to keep going and keep going once I've had that first one. Now, there were times where I was able to stop after one or two, but those times it always took a great effort. You know, I ran out of money or there's someone else there putting a lot of pressure on me. or you know, It was a huge effort for me to stop after I'd had a couple of drinks. 
Whereas a normal drinker, can, you know, it's not, it's not a problem to stop. If you're at a party, suddenly the grog runs out. From, for most people, it'd go, well, that's a terrible party. They've run out of alcohol, right? But for me, that's panic, right? Have I got any more at home? Is the bottle shop still open, right? That, that's, you know, because this craving is there. Now, because of the craving, I'm powerless after the first drink. After I've had that first drink, I don't know what's going to happen next, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, but I do know after I've had the first one, I'm going to want another one and another one after that. So how do I know if I have this allergy? You know, this whole step is about honest reflection. Right? Honest reflection about the way that I drank, what happened when I drank, those times where I promised myself and other people I wasn't going to get drunk, but I ended up drunk anyway. Those times where I had to be somewhere. I promised one of the kids I'm going to be at the sports, you know, at your sports event, right? But I start drinking beforehand and that goes out the window and I, and I miss it. Or even those times where I avoid the first drink because I know there's not going to be enough. Even that, to me, is evidence that I know about this, that I know that I drink differently to other people. If you're not sure, well, the AA book actually has a suggestion. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. To me, that sounds like torture. You know? <laughs> By the time I got to AA, I didn't need to try this. I had been trying this over and over again. I had for a long time. I've been trying to control my drinking and I hadn't been able to. But to me, the point about this is that this step is really about self-diagnosis. I have to come to my own conclusion that I'm alcoholic, not because my family tells me I'm an alcoholic, not because a counsellor or a doctor or someone else or AA tells me I'm an alcoholic. I need to understand what it is and go, yes, that's me. You know? I have, I, this is me. I don't drink like other people. When I drink, it tends to go out of control. So because of this craving we get, you know, I get drunk again and again and again. I certainly get drunk much more often than most people. And there are consequences to me being drunk a lot of the time, right? Because I start making really bad decisions in life. <laughs> and I put myself at risk and I put other people at risk and I do things that I forget about because I'm blacked out. And I do things that I wish I could forget about because I'm so embarrassed about it. And then I start... This goes on for some time and I start getting other problems in life. I start getting family problems. I'm getting employment problems because I'm not showing up to work or I'm hungover. I'm getting social problems. People don't want to know me if I'm behaving like this. I'm getting financial problems because I'm spending all my money on alcohol. I'm getting relationship problems because I'm having to lie and cover up right, and, and break promises to the people I love. I'm getting health problems, it's affecting my health in all sorts of different ways and I'm possibly getting legal problems if I'm drink driving and it depends on what sort of other substances I'm taking as well. And what happens to an alcoholic like me is that these problems build up and build up and so, you know, for, a lot of us, for a lot of us we actually start realising this is happening and, and we don't go out and you know, you know, do this in public and get our photograph taken and put, put on the, the internet like these people. Some of us start actually hiding away but the, it's still there, the drinking's out of control and those problems build up and build up until I get to, you know, occasionally an alcoholic like me will come up with a really bright idea a really bright idea. I look at all these problems in my life and they're caused by my drinking. So a bright idea, I'll give up drinking. And for, for me, that's a really, you know, for someone like me, that's a really smart idea. In, in fact, it's a very sane idea. If every time I start drinking, it tends to go out of control, the sane thing to do is don't pick up the first drink. 
Right? So I make that decision. I know I'm powerless after the first drink, so I've decided to stop drinking. That's it, no more. I'm going to give up. Very sane thing to do. So what happens then is I go into withdrawal. One of the reasons why we hesitate to stop is because I know, if I, you know, especially if I've been drinking for a long time and drinking a lot, if I suddenly stop, then I get a whole lot of symptoms. I get this withdrawal and I have to detox. Good idea for lots of us to actually get medical help to do that because right? it can actually be quite dangerous to suddenly stop. But you know, I do that, but I do that. And in the end of my drinking, I did this multiple times, you know, going into a detox, going into hospital, getting help to do that. Not a very nice place to be in that withdrawal, but the good news is it doesn't last very long. Seven to ten days, right, and it's out of my system, and I start feeling much better. I can remember that happening over and over again. Coming into a detox, feeling absolutely terrible, you know, get a few good meals and a vitamin B inject- injection and stuff like that. A week later, I'm raring to go again. You know? So I do the withdrawal, but, and I've noticed I've made this same decision. I'm not going to drink anymore because I know where it leads me. So now comes the next question, is can I stay stopped? And what I'd find is I would stay stopped for a time and then something would happen in my life. You know? The washing machine overflows. <laughs> and what happens is this thought comes into my head, well, you better have a drink. Now, for most people, the washing machine overflows. They think maybe, maybe there's something wrong with the washing machine. Maybe I should get a repairman. My first thought is, oh, you better have a drink. Or perhaps I lose my job and I think, poor me, and there it is, you know, that drink comes back into my head. Or my football team wins the grand final again. And I go, and that thought, everyone else is drinking, why shouldn't I drink? Now remember, I don't want that thought to be there. I've made the same decision that I shouldn't drink anymore. Because I know when I drink, it goes out of control. I've made that same decision. I've actually done the detox. I've done the, done the hard yards and, and stopped for a period of time, and the thought keeps on coming back. Perhaps a shoelace breaks. There it is again, there's that thought. Or there's some tragedy in my life, or there's something to celebrate, or it's just a nice day. And this thought keeps on coming back into my head and eventually comes a day and somehow I forget about all those bad things that are going to happen to me if I start drinking again. And I pick up the drink. When I pick up the drink, pick up that first drink, what happens? You know, that craving sets in again. That allergy. I drink differently to other people. It doesn't happen to most people, but when I drink, it sets off that craving and I keep drinking and I go on this binge and I keep drinking until and all those bad things come back into my life again. All those problems with relationships and health and family and employment, they all come back into my life until I get once again get to a point where I make this sane decision. That's it, I'm going to stop. That's it, bright idea. I stopped before. Right Now I'm going to stop again, maybe get some help, and I stop drinking. Whenever I stop drinking, life gets better because right? I'm showing up to work on time, I'm you know, able to keep promises, I've got more money in my pocket, my health's improving, things, getting, things are getting better, but at the same time, there's this, what AA calls an obsession. This thought of a drink keeps on coming back into my head. This memory of a drink keeps on coming back and coming back. And eventually comes a day I forget about all the bad things that are going to happen in I drink, when I drink and I start drinking again. When I start drinking again, it kicks off the craving again. Pretty quickly go back into that binge. Life turns bad again. Make the same decision to stop. And I stop again. Whenever I stop drinking, life gets better. Back on track again. Right? Getting things under control. Sorting out some of my other problems. But there's that obsession again. And eventually I pick it up again. And round and round and round I go. You know? For a long time, this, for me, this was a daily cycle. Every morning I get up today. You know, I've mucked up the night before. I've drunk too much today. I'm not going to have a drink today. That's it. And then by four o'clock, I've forgotten about that. 
right? There's that thought to have a drink again. I forget what happened the night before and I pick it up again and round and round on a daily basis. Now, the end of my drinking was a much longer cycle because I would go and get help and I'd go and do a detox and I'd stop for two months, two weeks, two days, whatever. I'd, st- I'd stop for a period of time right? and then somehow the thought would still be there and I'd pick it up again and, and I'd still be on that cycle. Can't really do anything about the physiology. It seems I process alcohol differently to most other people. So let's have a look at the obsession. What's the obsession about? The obsession is thoughts of drinking that keep returning, even though I've made that same decision not to drink. We have a look at a story. This is a story out of the AA book. This is Jim's story. If you're familiar with the book, the, the, the AA book, the front part of the book, uh, first 160-odd pages, describe the 12-step program, and the back part of the book is a whole lot of personal stories. Now, Jim's story is not one of the ones in the back. It's actually in the front part of the book. So it's a prime example, a prime example of alcoholism. This is what it says about Jim. Our first example is a friend we should call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable world war record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So there's Jim, nice guy. He's well respected, he's he's good at his job, he's well liked and he's intelligent. Okay, Doesn't have a whole lot of other problems until he started to drink. Until he started to drink and it went out of control. So we know at this point Jim wants to stop drinking. We know he wants to stop drinking because he's been seeking treatment. He knows about alcoholism. It's been explained to him, particularly the aspect about the craving that happens when he starts drinking. And he's admitted that he's a real alcoholic. So Jim has actually taken the first step. This just shows you that the first step on its own doesn't stop us drinking. First step on its own doesn't stop us drinking. It's actually the first step is the realisation that I can't stop on my own. Uh, And he knows about the consequences. He knows that if he starts drinking again, he'll go out of control, he'll lose his family, he'll end up back in the asylum again. That's all true. He knows all of that. Now, so he's come out of the hospital. Now, at this point, he's, uh, you know, he gets, even after all of that, he gets drunk again. So he's come out of hospital. um, He's sober a couple of months. He's got another job selling, selling cars. And this day he's gone out looking for someone to sell a car to and stopped at a roadside cafe, a place that he'd been to before excuse me, before uh, when he was drinking but also since he's been sober. So it's nothing out of the ordinary and he decides to have a sandwich for lunch and then he decides he's going to have a glass of milk with his sandwich. So just a normal day, having lunch, sandwich and a glass of milk and this is what happened next. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. 
The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. So he's off and running again and pretty soon back in that asylum again. So what happened to Jim? He's a couple of months sober, right? He knows that he's an alcoholic. He's taken the first step, right? And he's having lunch. This thought came into his head, if I put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it won't hurt. That's the thought that came into his head. He said, had this vague feeling, just this vague feeling, maybe this is not a very smart idea. But then his next thought is, his very next thought is, it'll be okay on a full stomach. Didn't, notice he didn't think about the consequences at all. It didn't come, come to him that if he starts drinking, he'll go out of control, he'll lose his family back in the asylum. None of that came to mind. Just this vague feeling, not a good idea, and then he has this second thought and he picks up the drink and, and there he goes again. This is how the book describes that sort of thinking. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favour of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. So this is the insanity of the first step. He knew what was going to happen. He'd experienced it over and over before. He knew what was going to happen if he drank again, but he went ahead and did it anyway. Sometimes you hear around, there's a quote from Albert Einstein says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Anyone heard that before? Yeah. See, I don't think that's insanity. That's just delusion. And the solution to that is simply to see the truth. The real insanity is when I know what's going to happen. I know I'm an alcoholic, right? I know the truth and I know it's going to hurt me but I go back and do it anyway. Talking about insanity, I want to talk about this place. This is uh, St Vincent's Hospital there on Nicholson Street. You don't know where that is in the city? Up on the third floor of that, uh, that building is Saint Di- what used to be St Dimpner's Ward. All the wards in St Vincent's are named after saints so there's St Peter's Ward, St John's Ward. St John's Ward's the surgical ward and and St Dimpner's Ward is, is uh, named after uh, St Dimpner, uh, who, whose dad was pretty crazy, so it's the psych hospital, psych ward. Now, I was there about 25 years ago, 26 years ago. Um, I was there voluntarily because I'd, I'd done one detox before and uh, my doctor at the time you know, couldn't work out why I kept on picking up a drink again and uh, decided to send me... To, you know, there wasn't any uh, rehabs around, 28-day rehabs uh, around at the time. So I went into there and I'd been there for a couple of weeks doing everything I was told to do. I was there voluntarily because I really wanted to stop drinking. I was there a couple of weeks and they let me out for half a day. I had to go back to Ivanhoe uh, to sign a new lease on the flat that I had, you know, something. And, they, and so they said, oh, we trust you. you know, go, back to, go back to Ivanhoe, catch the train, do what you have to do. I went and signed the new lease, checked the, the flat, made sure someone had been feeding the cat and checked the mail. And then I went back to the Ivanhoe railway station to catch the train back into the city and go back into hospital. When I got to the railway station, coming up over the railway bridge, there's a train there. As I crossed over the railway bridge, the, the train pulled out and I missed this train going back to the city by about 30 seconds. Now, across the road from the Ivanhoe railway station is the Ivanhoe Hotel. So I walked across the road into the bar, sat down and had a drink, much to my amazement. Now, I didn't really get, I didn't, you know, get stuck into it too much. I was there for a few hours, right, and then I started to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. And I, actually, I think I was embarrassed. I still had the hospital tag on my, on my wrist and some people came in that I knew and uh, I didn't want them to realise that I was actually in treatment for alcoholism at the time and there I am sitting there in the bar. I, I caught a later train back, back to the hospital. When I got there, my doctor was, still happened to be there and she smelt the grog on my breath and she said to me, have you been drinking? And I said, no. Right? Here's someone I've been trying to be honest with every day for the previous few weeks and I have a couple of drinks and I start lying to her. 
Anyway, she said, I can smell it on you. And so she took me aside. She took me into her office and she said to me, I remember this really clearly. She asked me, what made you decide to have a drink? And I didn't understand the question because I hadn't made a decision. I didn't stand on that railway footbridge and think to myself, I just missed that train by 30 seconds. I can go and sit on the platform and wait just 20 minutes for the next train or I can go across the road and have a drink and then weigh up the pros and cons and think about my circumstances and think about the consequences. None of that came to mind. I missed the train by 30 seconds. I walked across the road and had a drink. It was only after that that I started to think, wow, that was a really bad thing to do. It actually scared me that that was possible. But while I was in treatment, I actually busted so this is my problem. This is my long-term problem. Once I've done the detox, done the med- get the help, I can get help to do that, right? My problem is that this thought keeps on coming back into my head. Now, for some time, sometimes my next thought would be some sort of denial, like with Jim. My next thought is, oh, this time it'll be different. Or I think to myself, oh, I haven't had a drink for two months, so I'm okay to drink now, I must be cured. Or there's another type of denial that sneaks in. I start thinking, oh, last time wasn't that bad. You know, I've lost my job, my wife has left me and I've been in detox twice but things aren't so bad that I need to quit altogether. And any of that sort of denial is obviously going to lead me back to drinking again. A bit later on I've got past the denial. I'm really understanding that I'm an alcoholic and I shouldn't drink and I'd have that thought to have a drink and I'd have some sort of excuse because you know, I can't cope without a drink because I'm nervous about something or I'm angry or I'm worried I know I shouldn't, but I'm sad or I'm jealous of those people who can drink. And I'd pick up a drink again. I knew I shouldn't do it, but I'd somehow justify it. And the AA book talks about any of those excuses as being insanely insufficient when compared to the suffering I know is going to happen if I drink again. Then there were these other times. Anyone identifying with any of this stuff? (laughs) Then there were other times I'd have that thought to have a drink and I'd start this argument in my head. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Anyone identifying with that stuff, right? And if, I know whenever that argument was in, in my head, eventually I always, always lost that argument. Always ended up being, yes, I will. It might take a couple of days, might take a couple of weeks, may only take a couple of minutes. But I always lost that argument, ended up being, yes, I will. And then there was this other times where that thought to have a drink would come into my head and there'd be no second thought. No thought, no excuse, no resistance. I just go ahead and do it. And this is the bit that really scared me because this had happened to me more than once. With that denial aspect, I can think to myself, with enough self-knowledge, I can really look at myself and really come to the conclusion, I am an alcoholic and I shouldn't drink. I certainly came to that point. And with those excuses, I come to lots of AA meetings and I hear people coming back, sometimes people coming back from a bust, and I listen carefully to their, to their story and they've come up with some excuse about why, you know, some ex- or about why they shouldn't come to so many meetings or why, they, why it's okay to go back and have a drink. And when I hear somebody else tell the story, I can see how ridiculous that excuse is compared to what happened after they picked up a drink. And with that thing with the argument in my head, I think to myself, with a bit more willpower, with a bit more strength, I'll be able to win the argument every time. But how do I combat it against this? Where the thought just comes into my head and I go ahead and act on it really scary place to be that this has happened to me more than once. So the obsession is thoughts of drinking that keep returning. Sometimes we think of an obsession as something that we think about 24 hours a day and for me it wasn't always like that. There were times where I would stop drinking you know, and and get on with my life, get a new job. I wasn't thinking about drinking all the time but my problem is it would just keep on popping back, popping back often when I least expected it. And because of that I'm powerless before the first drink. 
how do I know if I have the obsession to this extent? Well, once again, it's about honest reflection. Thinking back about the way that I drank, but in this case, those times where I decided that I wasn't going to drink or I did stop for a period of time and then I picked up again. If you're not sure you have the obsession to this extent, once again, there's a suggestion in the book. There's been the suggestion that you know, uh, you know, we tried controlled drinking, that didn't work. So here's, you know, here's the second suggestion. If anyone questions whether he's entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. So there's the suggestion. Just stop. Just stop using your own willpower. Now, if I could have done that, then I would now be over 25 years sober. All it would have taken was one detox. You know? Just stop drinking, get some help maybe to do that, and then stop drinking, and now I'm someone who doesn't drink anymore. Right? I'd be over 20, 25 years sober, and I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic, and I wouldn't be coming to AA. I'm just someone who had that craving aspect, so I decided to stop. The trouble is I couldn't stop and stay stop on my own. And for me, that's what this, the first step is about, is the realisation that I can't stay so, sober no matter how hard I try. That's the first step. When I can't stay sober no matter how hard I try. We're going to have a look at another story. This is Fred's story, also in the front part of the book. So it's another prime example of alcoholism. Now, Fred's a businessman in New York. Um, he's actually described he's a partner in an accounting firm, so he's a very you know, smart guy. You know? um, uh, and you know, he's described in the book as having attractive personality, makes friends with everyone, good income, happily married, stable, well-balanced, good judgement. Sometimes, you know, um, it's interesting, a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago I was at a meeting and a, a young woman got up and she, she, um, she talked about, she was fairly new around, she talked about she picked up the first drink she was, when she was 14 and she said, and I didn't, can't remember having any problems when I was 14 but I must have had because I ended up being an alcoholic. There's this assumption that there must be something else wrong with us so before we pick up a drink right, that, caught, that makes us into an alcoholic. Whereas what Silkworth was saying, and in my experience, is the thing that makes me an alcoholic is the craving that happens when I start drinking. Right? And some of us have all sorts of... We have all sorts of different backgrounds. And some of, them, some of us had, had difficult childhoods and difficult other problems in our lives. Some of us didn't. Right? The thing that makes me an alcoholic is that craving, is that craving that sets me apart from other people. And if I keep on drinking long enough, it creates the other part of it, is that I can't stay sober no matter how hard I try. So Fred's an alcoholic. Despite all of that, he's gone into treatment. It's been explained to him again about the craving aspects. He makes this same decision that he's not going to drink again. Right? So once again, he stays sober for a couple of months and he actually says in the story, I had no excuse for drinking. This particular day, he's had to go from New York where he lived to Washington to give a presentation as part of his work. And uh, so this is how he described this particular day. So he's a couple of months sober... And this is, this is this day. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. So Fred's having a great day. 
fantastic day, not a worry in the world, not a cloud on the horizon. You know, he's not restless, irritable, discontent, you know, anxiety, those things we often associate with early recovery. He's got past that point, that, right? So he's getting on with life, right? having a great day. And this is what happened next. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. So Fred's done a lot of crazy things. He doesn't know where he was for three days. But of course he did those things because he was intoxicated, because he was drunk. The really insane thing he did is when he was stone cold sober. He had the thought to have a drink and he went ahead and did it. He said, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. He's even worse than Jim. I mean, at least Jim had this vague feeling, maybe not a good idea. He hasn't thought about it at all. I'll tell you another story. I'd come out of, I'd come out of that psych hospital. I'd stayed, I stayed sober for a little while, got another job, busted again, back into a detox again, came out of there. You know, by this time, I've lost the flat. Uh, you know, busted again, got a different job. Uh, and then I'm, almost, I'm homeless. And my parents convinced my younger brother to let me stay at his place. So I'm newly out of this, out of this rehab, a couple of weeks sober. The most important thing in my life is don't drink. It's wrecked my life. Marriage is gone, my career's in shreds, you know, my health's affected, I've made the same decision, I'm never going to drink again, and I know if I start drinking again, I'm probably homeless. Okay? Most important thing in my life is don't drink. This day comes about, it's a, it's a Melbourne winter, uh, first sunny day they'd been in some time. I, I know it was a Thursday, I had some money in my pocket. I thought, I've got to do some, I've got to do some washing, so I'm going to do my brother, my brother a favour as well. Do something really positive. It's a nice day, let's get on with life, do something positive. So I got all my washing and my brother's washing. I went down to the local laundromat, put two big loads of washing into the washing machines and walked across the road and had a drink. Much to my amazement, I, I can remember a whole lot of things that happened in that pub that afternoon, some people I spoke to, some, even some of the conversations I had. I can also remember thinking, gee, I shouldn't be drinking, but now I've started, I might as well keep going. See, the craving kicked in. I kept on drinking, didn't go back and pick up the washing for another two days. Someone had put it in a box and put it in the corner. This actually scared me. When I came to AA and I read this bit out of the book, I really identified. The fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defence against the first drink. See, that's exactly what happened to me. I had no defence against that first drink. So the first step becomes this simple question, am I powerless over alcohol? It's a simple question, actually. 
Now, if you, and I, I, I want to sort of break it down into, into say, three, three parts. Actually, if you go to rehab, they'll probably give you a list of, I think, 68 questions about the first step. But I want to break it down to just three questions. Does my drinking go out of control once I start? Do I have the craving aspect of it? And for me, I've known that for a long time and it just got worse and worse over, the time, over time. So, yes, that's me. That's me. Uh, it goes out of control once I start. Second question. So have I decided to stop? Have I made the same decision that I shouldn't drink anymore? And I certainly made that decision because it was wrecking my life. As I said, lost the marriage, lost property, lost money, lost career, uh, health, dignity, everything. I made the same decision, I don't want to do this anymore. Third question, have I kept picking up a drink despite my efforts to stop? And for for me that was true. For nearly three years I tried to stop drinking and I failed and I failed and I failed. Because I can't stay sober no matter how hard I try. That's what it was like. I couldn't stay sober no matter how hard I tried. Big tick on that one. Think about that. I mean, it's all very well to go tick, tick, tick in my head. Really, for me, though, is when that tick, tick, tick in my head goes, I'm in deep, deep trouble. If these things are true for me, I'm in deep trouble. And it moves from my head to the heart and I really accept, OK, I'm an alcoholic. If I'm powerless after the first drink because of the craving and I'm powerless before the first drink because of the obsession, then I'm powerless over alcohol and my life becomes unmanageable. And the first step is simply admitting that that's true. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. The thing about this first step is there's no hope in the first step. There's no solution in the first step. That's just acknowledging the problem. The hope comes in step two and the rest of the 12-step program, which the rest of this weekend will be about. So if I'm powerless over alcohol, step two suggests that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So step one requires honesty. Honest reflection about the way that I drank and honest reflection about my inability to stay stopped. Whereas step two requires an open mind. If everything that I've tried to do to stop drinking has failed, I need an open mind, open enough to listen to what's working for other people, even if they're suggesting something really radical, like a spiritual 12-step program. So step one comes from desperation. It comes from desperation and suffering and repeated failure. Not a nice place to be, step one. I wouldn't want to go back there. Whereas step two comes from inspiration. I come to AA, I meet people who've recovered, who've been to the same places, done the same things as me, uh, were powerless just as I am, and they're not drinking and they're happy about not drinking, and I get inspired, well, maybe, maybe there's something that can help me. Step one is being honest about the problem, and step two is believing that there's a solution. And the rest of the 12-step program as I said, we're going to talk about for the rest of the weekend, is about applying the solution that's been found to work. Okay? These are the 12 steps. We identify with that first step. The second step is believing that there's this power greater than myself that can help me. Great news about that is I get to choose my own conception of what that is. AA doesn't try and tell me what to believe, but it does suggest I, can believe, I, I need to believe in something. And then I make a decision. And for me, that third step is a decision to try and live by some spiritual principles and then we get to what's known as the house cleaning steps where I have to get off my bum and do something, take inventory and share it with someone, become willing to change and pray for help and look, for the har- look at the harm we've done and make amends. And, where I, and when I do that, then the book actually promises and AA promises a revolutionary change in my way of living and thinking. And 
in that way have overcome that obsession to drink. Where I really want to get to is those last three steps where I continue to take inventory on a daily basis, some prayer and meditation in step 11 and a big part of what I need to do in order to stay sober is that last step in carrying the message. So there's our program and you'll notice as we, as you, for this whole weekend, every, every one of the people that will come up here and share their experience, every one of the invited speakers has been through that process and had that revolutionary change. It's an inspiring thing. So step one, a simple question. Am I powerless over alcohol? I'll just show it to you in one last way. This guy's a normal drinker. You can say, I can always control when and how much I drink. I don't need to stop drinking. Now, I know for sure I'm not that guy. Right? I know lots of people like that. My sister's like that. My brother's like that. I know lots of people who enjoy a drink. Sometimes they might even have more than they normally would. Sometimes they might even get drunk. But most of the time, and any time they decide not to get drunk, they don't. They can control their drinking. They can control and enjoy their drinking. So I know I'm not that guy. Am I this guy? This guy has the allergy only. Once I start drinking, I don't want to stop, so I've decided not to drink at all. That's it. I'm going to stop, and I can stay sober on my own willpower. Am I that guy? I've met some people like that. There's some people, actually some people in AA, I've heard people say that. All I do is I I don't pick up the first drink and I go to some meetings to remind myself. And I haven't, you know, haven't attempted a 12-step program or read the book. I just go to some meetings and I do it on my own willpower. I've met people in AA who can do that. And if you can do that, good luck to you. Keep coming back. Keep telling your story. Right? But I know I'm not that guy. Maybe I'm this guy. This guy has the allergy and the obsession. Even though I want to stop, I keep picking up again and again. I'm powerless over alcohol. When I was first trying to stop drinking, I was hoping... I knew I wasn't the first guy. I was hoping... I was that middle guy. (laughs) But I failed and I failed and I failed because I couldn't stay sober But no matter how hard I tried. In the end, I had to admit I'm the last guy. Thanks for letting me share.